When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Venture X from Capital One is the travel card for people always asking, where next? You earn 10X miles on hotels and rental cars and 5X miles on flights booked through Capital One Travel and 2X miles on everything else you buy with Venture X. Plus, receive premium travel benefits like access to over 1,300 airport lounges. The Venture X card from Capital One. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com for details. Hey, Ray, how you feeling? You know, when the temperatures drop and we get that winter feeling things, it really affects me more. That's when I get that aching in my bones. But I found that CBD and medicinal together can take care of the majority of my aches and pains. The ones that, you know, you have every day as you age, but also the ones that you get from all those activities of taking care of business in the fall. No kidding. I've been doing a lot of raking because we have so many old trees around our house that you rake one day and then two days later... The yard's filled up with leaves again. And that's why we're happy to have One CBD as our sponsor. Go to OneCBD.com. That's O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Or follow them on at OneCBDLife on Twitter. And you can find out about all the aspects of what One CBD does to help you with your pain. One of the things that I like the most, Marcus, is that everything they purchase to be used in their CBD is 100% organically grown hemp, free from pesticides and fertilizers, and that's important. I also like the fact that they're third-party lab tested and made in the USA. And they know how to take care of business when it comes to your pain. At 1CBD, O-N-E-C-B-D.com. Achieve a renewed sense of balance. Ray, imagine, if you will, 51 years ago, a musical sorcerer, a wizard, a genius standing over his cauldron, moving his hands, making this musical brew come to life with different ingredients by mixing in their sound styles, moods, and feelings. On the surface, these magical musical ingredients have no idea if this magical brew is going to be concocted, but... 
they sure are doing their best to make it work. The wizard knows the magical ingredients he's put in the cauldron, the recording studio are going to work well together, complement each other, oppose each other at times, and with the help of an incredibly talented co-wizard, they make the perfect brew. The Bitches Brew. Today, we are going to discuss this monumental genre-bending recording with you, Miles Davis's Bitches Brew. This is the imbalanced history of rock and roll. I'm Marcus in the Darkest, alongside my jazzy partner. How you doing, man? I'm just here in the co-pilot seat, just holding on to the stick, watching you drive, man. This is a perfect way to get into our episode, which, as always, is brought to you by Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro. Stop by and say hi from the imbalanced history of rock and roll and get a free 10-ouncer. I like the deal, Marcus. And by 1CBD. Check them out online at onecbd.com. When we started talking about doing an episode about Bitches Brew, I wasn't sure what your perspective would be. I know what my view of it is, is the of the album and its impact on things. And as we've moved closer to today and making today's episode, we've learned a lot about our individual views of such a landmark album that kind of fuses together parts of things, elements, if you will. It's almost like alchemy. And Miles Davis is that wizard pulling it all together knowing because as you were saying in your opening there no one knew whether it was all going to work but he knew because he knew he was going to take the piano parts here put this left put this one on drums right put this thing over here and he knew what he had in mind and he worked together with his producer to make that a reality and all of the things that came out of these sessions are a huge part of what i want to talk about today and i know you want to talk about today but also the music that became bitches brew a landmark double album man columbia showed the cojones on that columbia records took a huge risk fully trusting miles davis on this one but in a silent way the album before was successful he's had success with so many albums including kind of blue the birth of cool so columbia had a lot of faith and a lot of trust in this guy and while they might not have always gotten or understood what he saw and what he heard they trusted him and they went with it one of the main elements for me in what makes this a landmark album towards jazz rock becoming a thing almost immediately after this album's out. Really, things start turning during these sessions that start putting things in motion to form three major jazz rock bands. The inclusion of John McLaughlin with all these double and triple musicians, John was the only guitarist involved. It was a genius stroke by Miles if his intention was to put the right guy in place to spark a jazz rock revolution. And that's what Bitches Brew did. It really did. And it was one of the first albums that was called, if not the first album, a fusion album because he had mixed in elements of rock and roll, the elements of the African sound, the elements of blues, the elements of so many other styles of music. And one of the really cool things that he did with this was, well, there were so many cool things that we will talk about throughout this episode, but he really put faith in the musicians and he had this attitude that I'm not going to tell you what to play. If you don't know what to play, you don't belong here. Which for these guys as accomplished players, there were some younger guys involved, but as accomplished players, that was a challenge as much as it was something 
that you might be a little leery of because it was Miles throwing the gauntlet down. So you know that he knows what he's talking about. This is a guy that was the most respected voice. Anyone who ever encountered Miles has learned to appreciate what his music is and was throughout his life and throughout his entire career from the 40s forward. You mentioned in a silent way going into Bitches Brew and actually there was a review of the reissue and who's throwing that gauntlet down, Marcus? I mean, it's Miles Davis, so you know everybody's paying attention, right? Mm -hmm. In the 1970 review of the album by Langdon Winter, he mentions that this album is a further extension of the basic idea he looked into on the Phillies D. Kilimanjaro and In a Silent Way. So it's more of a progression thing, which we've seen in other forms, in other genres. He was growing and advancing at the same time, getting ready to take a huge step that would influence all kinds of things that maybe even he didn't know. Yeah, the recording was different than anything he had done before. One of the few similarities he had with In a Silent Way and Kind of Blue is, is that the sketches weren't fully written. They were noted and sort of discussed. Right. And That'd be then, scary to the yeah, A&R guys, it, right? They're like, wait a minute, Miles has this great idea. It's going to be a double album, and he doesn't really have that much to give us other than it's going to be a double album, and he's got all these people coming in. The fact that they would do these albums basically in one take. A lot of times, uh, each song would be one take, or sometimes two or three, if something didn't go quite right. But a lot of times, these were first take guys. That's how jazz players played. And the way they put it together was much different from that, right? Yeah, Teo Macero took Bitches Brew and produced it a whole new way than he had ever done with any of the previous albums he had worked on with Miles. And basically, Miles told him with Bitches Brew, put it all together and every one of the musicians who heard the music before Teo disappeared cut it pasted it and he did it the old school way with the yep. I can't even imagine how actually much. cutting and editing and piecing it all together it's it, without electronic enhancements like you have today it's yet, brilliant I, stuff every one of the musicians who heard the sessions before and after production were completely blown away by how different they were they could not believe what they heard because he was taking segments that were at the beginning and moving them to the middle or to the end. They're switching middle segments or just reversing and looping hooks and things like that, making it very yeah. circular and groove oriented. But at the same time, there were no mistakes on this album. If you really think about it, it was all sounds that were perfect. And if they didn't use the sounds, it meant that the mood or the vibe or the feeling didn't fit. They weren't incorrect. So technically, in a way, it's kind of a perfect album. Think about that. Listening in the last few days, Marcus, getting ready for this, there's no argument to that. It's a perfect album. And it had imperfections, but it was a perfect album. And it had all these amazing consequences. It influenced so much. It put people together. Like from the beginning, look at how it's all coming together. They tell him he's going to go over there to the CBS studios. He's booking time. Him and Teo are setting up what they're going to do. But like you said, there's not really a tight plan. So they get in there and it, he has Chick Corea playing electric piano in his current touring band. And he's going to bring Jack DeJanette in, who's a veteran of a lot of Miles records. Wayne Shorter, his tenor sax guy, Dave Holland on bass. And then because he had other parts that he wanted recorded and played back and mixed in to make sure that his vision worked, he set up a mirror unit to his normal band. These guys were complimented by Joe Zylenol on keyboards, all right, or bringing Benny Maupin on bass clarinet to add another layer. 
and he brings in Larry Young as a third keyboard player, and somehow that's the magic of a lot of parts on this album, how the three of them work together. And it's almost like if you set it up, it's like a circle, right? Everybody's there, they're all set up, and they're all playing at the same time, and they're recording it all, trying to figure out how to use the parts here, there, and everywhere. And other players are brought in. It's like Harvey Brooks comes in and plays bass on a lot of things. He's the other bass player. And Lenny White comes in, and uh, Don Alias is playing all his congas and all his drums and stuff. Homer Santos, who was miscredited as Jim Riley, it says here on my notes, played all his you know stuff on Miles Runs the Voodoo Down, which is some wild stuff in here. And this is where I have to make a self-correction from a previous episode when we did our five favorites and drummers of the 1970s. I was talking about Billy Cobham as Miles' is his drummer of choice in the 70s. And that's not true, although he did play some part in all of Miles' album of the 70s. And on Bitches Brew, he does play. He's the left drummer on Fayo, and that's his one part on Bitches Brew. So, And while Billy certainly didn't have the chair the way that Jack DeJeanette did through the 60s before that, he was on all those records. So Many others were as well, though. So many great players played with Miles, and this one is chock full of people who not only were great at the time they made this album in 1969, but who would go on to fusion, jazz, rock greatness with three major units coming out of these sessions just months after everything was all done. It's mind-blowing that this recording process put these groups of people together and they brought in the people around them to create the three bands that they did. And then together, they flipped the world upside down. Even King Crimson used influences from Miles oh, yeah. Davis. So Miles cool. Runs the Voodoo Down was totally inspired by Jimi Hendrix Voodoo Child. He was blown away by who the fuck Jimi Hendrix was. You hear the crossover in the influence, and when you hear all these progressive bands who are influenced by this album, and you read about it, it's pretty impressive to read all of that and to learn it. Well, since I know some of it, I learned some of it, and I've got it all here. Let's run it down before we get to the mid-break and have a cold one on Crooked Eye. What do you say? I'm good with that. Now, Miles, as we've discussed, had this idea of having this mirrored band, right? A big circle of everybody playing, so he'd hear some things on the left side, right side, and it was produced in a lot of ways and a lot of parts. Pretty much a left-right thing. You'd have mm-hmm. one thing happen over here and then another over here. And that brought together Joe Zywinall, who's very accomplished at that time already as a keyboard player, very creative, very otherworldly in some ways jazz player, and Wayne Shorter, who'd been playing with Miles, okay? Now, they get together and they form Weather Report, and other people come in, Erto's in there, there's also uh, Miroslav Vitu, and of course, Jaco Pastorius comes along <laughs> as part of the Weather Report over the years, and they change a lot. You've also got John McLaughlin forming up with Billy Cobham, by the way, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which becomes another amazing group that moves jazz rock fusion forward in the 70s. Jan Hammer becomes the keyboard in there with Jerry Goodman on violin and Rick Laird on the bass. And that propels forward. Then you get Return to Forever, which is Chick Corea meeting up with Lenny White in these sessions, hooking up with Stanley Clark and Al Miola and creating some of the most amazing jazz rock music in my collection and in my brain. I can just start playing Return to Forever in my brain at any time if I want. It's that good. I know that sounds fucked up, but it's true, man. I've been that stoned and I'm not quite that stone right now so we can keep talking about bitches <laughs> brew and miles davis here on the imbalance history of rock and roll but do you see this is the thing that makes it really exciting is the music itself is amazing and we'll talk more about that in the second half and i think we can get to a lot of other things too as we move into the second half but to put together
together what happened, how this album changed things, that it came on the backside of Woodstock. They started their sessions, what, a month after Woodstock? No, like a week. Was it that close? I know yeah, it was, it was like, like a week after, after. So that's still in the air. You're in New York City. You're working at CBS Studios. All these people have been in and around, and you're, you're breathing that atmosphere of the Woodstock Nation. You go in the studio, and you come out with an album that makes everybody go, Whoa! It's Bitches Brew. On the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll, we're going to have a tasty brew at Crooked Eye. And then we'll come back. We'll talk a little more about the music, Miles' life, and this amazing album, Bitches Brew. I was talking to Paul and Pete, man, and they want to offer a special thank you to all of the listeners of the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll. What kind of special are you talking about? Everybody likes free beer, Marcus. How about a free 10-ouncer when you go in and mention the Imbalanced History of Rock and Roll when you sit down and order your first drink? Free 10-ouncer, yes. Some of the most amazing brews you're going to find at any brewery in the Philadelphia area right there at York and Montgomery in the heart of Hatboro. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery. Pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. My favorite of all the Crooked Eye beers is the Black Eye Stout. I love that Oh, yeah, you love that. that. Yes, you do. So smooth and just so full of flavor. Jeff manages to get more flavor. And the way he kind of masks the edge on the hops is oh, beautiful. And you can't beat going in, sitting down, saying, hey, I listened to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. May I please have that free 10-ouncer? <laughs> free beer. Why not stop in and get a growler, a pint, a crowler? Take some home with you. And don't forget, the entertainment's back. It's coming back in stages. There's more and more stuff going on. And find out what events are back and when they are. It's Crooked Eye Brewery on Facebook. Right in the heart of Hatboro, the cure for what ails you. And a free 10-ouncer. When you mention the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and we thank them for their support. Time for more Bitches Brew with Miles Davis on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. It sounds funny to say Miles Davis on our podcast. A little bit. I mean, I love him. I listen to his music, but it still seems a little bit not rock and roll, except for we are talking about an album that is definitely in the uh, crossing of bridges, banding people together business, I guess you'd call it. And I want to put this out there for you, pal. Big part of the reason of there being such a strong rock side in the sound of this album is because of the guy on guitar, John McLaughlin. And... If you want to look for evidence of that, look at the song John McLaughlin, which Miles named and stayed out of. And Spanish Key is another song that really shows McLaughlin's rock influence on Bitch's Brew. John McLaughlin took Miles Davis to see live at Monterey, the Jimi Hendrix movie concert at a theater in New York City because Miles was very interested in Jimi Hendrix and knew that John McLaughlin had played with him as well. So there was that sort of crossover and Miles Runs the Voodoo Down is inspired by who Jimi Hendrix was. I'll tell you what, how about that? You're at a theater, they're showing Monterey, you go in and you look to your left and a few guys down the way. It's Miles Davis and John McLaughlin watching the movie. That would freak me the fuck out. In an interview that I read in Jazz World, John McLaughlin said Miles Davis's response to the movie was, Fuck. Far out, man. And can you imagine him just doing that long, drawn-out fuck with the uh, raspy voice of his? That would have been yeah. amazing. Uh, right here. 
He was an enigma to some people. Part of it was the voice, which you said was from an injury or something, right? Yeah, he had like a polyp or a nodule removed from his throat, and he was supposed to be quiet for a couple of weeks, and he made it about 10 days, and he was doing okay for a little while, and then his voice got worse and raspier and raspier, and he never recovered. Uh, I did not know that. It was in the uh, Miles Davis uh, documentary on PBS a while back called The Birth of Cool, and that was one of the notes that I had taken from that documentary. Before we really start talking more about the album Bitches Brew, I'd like to talk a little bit about his childhood because his childhood had an impact on who he was and who sure. we, and who we got to hear and what we got to hear because right, when right. Miles played, he played from the depths of his soul and he played his heart out for people and that was something that was always important to him. He was born in East St. Louis. His dad was a dentist and farmer and was the second richest man in all of Illinois. What? Y- yep, and yet he still had to deal with segregation, hate, and racism. Jesus. And no matter how much money he had, he still was not privy to that privilege that the wealthy had back then because of the time that it was. At 12 years old, his dad gave him a trumpet. He used to walk through the forest listening to sounds, and then he would try to recreate them. Wow, that's cool. And yeah, that's really cool. And it explains... Like Jimmy, like Jimmy trying to imitate the rain, right? Absolutely, the raindrops with that first guitar. To hear those comparisons, and to hear that is pretty fascinating. So there was this kind of bond between the two, and they didn't even know it. Summer after high school, Miles Davis had a sit-in with the Billy Eckstein band. There he met Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Bird Parker in the band. And from the documentary, this was the Miles Davis quote from his autobiography. The day I met Bird and Diz was the greatest day I ever had with my clothes on. (laughs) That's just so Miles Davis. He then moved to New York City at 20, attended Juilliard by day. He hated it there because it was too structured and too controlling, but he played jazz on 52nd Street at night, and his career took off quickly. Irony, the building that became CBS Recording Studios is the original Juilliard building there, and so he grew tired of that, but ended up back there to make bitches brew. How about that? He also got to travel overseas in his younger days, spent some time in Paris, and hung out with Jean-Paul Sartre and and Pablo Picasso. and Cool company if you can keep it, man. And he said his favorite part about being there was he was treated like an equal human being for his creative genius amongst other creative geniuses. And then he was very disappointed when he got home because he felt the racism and the hate even more and the prejudice even more. So it was really hard for him. And then, of course, he had battles with heroin over the years, and he still made some of the most amazing heartfelt music we will ever hear. Ryan Bray from Consequence of Sound had a nice quote in his review of the re-release of uh, Bitches Brew back in March of 2020. And he said, quote, most of his innovations were warmly welcomed and celebrated, but others challenged even his most ardent defenders to follow him into new arenas. Almost 30 years after his death, Davis remains both a jazz hero and a wily maverick. He is both the genre's most famous advocate and its biggest antagonist, end quote. Ryan Bray from Consequence of Sound online at consequenceofsound.com. Good call, man. That's a good call there. Great quote, too. 
you know, the whole mindset of Miles Davis wanting to push the envelope and take everything to the next level was very important, and it was very much who he was because he felt that you couldn't change anything unless you pushed it to the next level or took it to a place where it's never been before, and he was always doing that. I can only imagine what was going on in his head musically as he was walking down the street or just living his life. Well, he wasn't wrong about that supposition that you mentioned there, Marcus, because that's the reality for an artist, any artist. The difference between Miles Davis and all the other artists around him, even some of his heroes, is they were incredibly talented, knowledgeable, etc., 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 to the nth degree. Miles Davis was a fucking genius walking amongst them. Everything <laughs> that he had was unique and different and challenged and pushed. Even when Bebop was pushing the edge, he was pushing Bebop. He actually helped so many people to open up that it's hard to calculate his influence. It really is. True. Albums like Birth of Cool really made jazz cool instead of just uh, more underground. Literally and figuratively, because a lot of the speakeasies and stuff we're talking about were underground. underground. They were in the back room. They were down the alleyway and downstairs underneath, back behind the boiler room. All these Mm -hmm. things were true. And that all grew out of prohibition, yet it continued to be part of the culture of jazz well into the 40s and 50s. Those little clubs that nobody knew about where you could go see those amazing guys named Miles and Bird. Those were the places where people could mix black and white and all colors together and that was actually very welcome and very open and it was kind of cool how that was done on the down low because society was so unaccepting of it at that time but to be able to go see it with everybody, I can only imagine how much fun it would have been in those speakeasies. Seriously, think about how crazy it got in those places back then. All right, we haven't put them to any good use in a while so I'm going to get the uh, uh, imbalanced research team to fire up the imbalanced <laughs> time machine because mm-hmm. we need to go back to, uh, I guess you'd say, Chicago. We could go back to Chicago. We can go back to Atlantic City, apparently, because they had a big speakeasy underground bordello <laughs> type situation back during Prohibition. We got to find a spot. Duck! And Marcus are going back. Don't forget, we're taking the dog. Uh, (laughs) But I know what you're talking about, pal. This album, I got all the session dates in front of me, by the way, came together in the steamy summer of 1969. The guys were basically told, come on in by about 10 or so, and we'll be out by about one or so. They knew what they wanted to achieve every day with the recording and the adding of parts on this side and that side and to do what Miles was thinking of. And this is where we could use a little help from jazz experts who might be listening because I'm not sure why, but the first song, which is a beautiful stage setting song, Pharaoh's Dance, written by Joe Zywanall, with Miles writing most of the rest of the material. Never understood why that was a Zywanall track at the beginning, other than maybe it was serving the purpose of setting the table for everything that was coming that was going to be a little more mind-bending down the track here. Starting off with Pharaoh's Dance was kind of confusing because it bounces back and forth. It doesn't flow like your typical jazz album.
what we heard in a yeah, silent you're right way about that you're right about that was kind of confusing you know because it didn't have that flow so it forces you to listen longer and to see where it's going and it also seems that this different type of flow or style even though there are circular beats underneath and circular rhythms underneath mm -hmm. it feels like maybe even miles didn't know where the hell he was going with it as he was taking off on this journey did it take form out of the work did it reveal itself to him hey tomorrow when you come in joe i need you to do something in this one stretch he'd hear it bring it in or when they came in did he have parts for them i don't know if he had parts for everybody because teo took the pieces and really cut the hell out of this track and put it together but while he was writing these pieces they would play something they would stop and then he would take it to the next place and then they would start up again and then they would stop and then they would write some of the sketch and then they would start up again and during this time i can't even time, imagine I, I can't it must have been chaos marcus because i know what we go through putting together a fucking podcast <laughs> and it's only and two of us <laughs> i know and you got three keyboard players and they're all in a different frame of mind and yet they all have to hit the pause button in their mind until it's their turn to lay down the next set of notes and mm -hmm. if that's how it was being done in the analog age of the 1960s god my head would explode oh i don't even know yeah it's been so long since we've even done analog radio i can't even imagine what it would have been like to do a piece like this in analog and during the time like he would be playing and he would just say somebody's name or he would say john play that sound or play this sound or play that sound and he would point to people and they had to know That's where to go. That's why they were all together there so they could pick the person to put into the part and do this and record that right here and put that in and Teo's back there recording it all and twisting all the knobs and making sure it's all good to go. A couple of the tracks on the album were actually played live for a few months before they started recording but the final composition that ended up in the album was totally different than what they played. I'm shocked! <laughs> 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 including uh, Sanctuary was recorded by the quintet before the group that he had now, and so it sounded a little bit differently. And then uh, I'm trying to think, Miles runs the voodoo down. Don Alias, in the recording sessions, came up with the groove. He was sitting there watching Miles struggle over one of the drum lines, and he said, I've got an idea, I've got an idea. So he said, show me, and he showed him the groove. Miles liked it. Miles said, can you teach Jack that? Jack didn't get it, so he had Don play one side while Lenny White played the left side. See, it's, but, you know, this is complicated for any era, okay? <laughs> My brain but remember, hurts. it's 1969. They just got to 18 or 24 tracks, and Miles is filling the shit up completely. And the next song that we want to talk about, the title track... It is a clarion call. This is what's coming, the trumpet sounds. I'll say it again. This is what's coming. And Bitches Brew underway, like full 20, almost 27 minutes. It shakes you. It takes you places. It's inspiring music that makes you just take a little time and listen and feel. And I suggest you do that with this whole album. It's a long listen. You can take it in sides, take it in bites. And if you have a copy, listen to it. Listen to it on vinyl, CD, whatever. But you can also find it online, too. The feels in that song are different than the feels in the songs coming along, like Spanish Key, which is this long piece. It 
has a little bit more of a, I don't want to say Caribbean, but it has that kind of a vibe to it in spots. And it also has more rock. It has more McLaughlin guitar, driving parts of it, interlocked with all the keyboards. And it, like I said, there's a team of three out there working that keyboard angle. It's amazing to hear what they come up with on Spanish key. And then we mentioned earlier John McLaughlin, the uh, song that Davis wrote, and named after him, and it said, I'm not going to play on it. <laughs> yeah, he basically let John run that song because he had so much faith in him and he loved his playing. Concentrated in like four and a half minutes, the shortest song on the album. Pretty interesting approach and a really great track. And again, that's where John McLaughlin is one of the main influences that makes this record. Listening to the first four songs back to back to back to back on CD or on headphones or however you listen to, even though they're so different, they flow into each other. The transitions are perfect. And to be able to do that with music that's his album is, is and is long, awesome. yes. Oh my God. One of the critics I read about the album said that this, like, oh, Spanish Fly or whatever, um, Pharaoh's Dance could have been a great 13-minute piece or Bitches Brew could have been a fantastic 11-minute piece and things like that if they cut some of this stuff out. But wow, no way. And you also mentioned the wow. fact that... Yeah, I, I don't know who thought they had the balls to say any of that, but wow. One of the other uh, things that I found really interesting in reading about the making of Bitches Brew is that while he had like Chick Corea play the right channel and Joe Zawinul play the left channel and Larry Young playing, he tried to make it so it sounded like one keyboardist and not three. And so they worked really hard at the mixing and the cleaning up of it and the flow to make sure that it sounded that way. And they did the same thing with the drums, the right channel drum and the left channel drum and tried to make them sound like one drummer. Hey, buddy, I got a text from the research department about the building that we're talking about where this album was made. It was originally built as a guest house by the Vanderbilts in 1908. Now, they had a house a block away, but this is where the guests would stay when they came to visit New York. <laughs> Vanderbilt home is CBS studio. That's pretty rad. In 1924, the Vanderbilts sold it to the Juilliard Musical Foundation where it became Juilliard's first graduate school, 1924. I'm not done yet. You won't believe this. In 1939, CBS, which had its corporate headquarters around the corner on Madison Avenue, bought the building at 49 East 52nd to move its radio operations, except for the main network, newsroom, to that location. So that was where CBS radio was starting in 1939. When the Vanderbilt sold that building off is about the time they were falling apart financially and needed to... Uh 
sell some of their buildings to have a little bit of capital. Part of CBS Radio became Columbia Records. Well, times changed, and they eventually moved CBS Radio out of there, and by 1966, it had become the entire recording facility and offices for Columbia Records, the home of people like uh, Frank Sinatra and Barbara Streisand, you know the deal, Bob Dylan. Mm -hmm. And so that's the studio right there on 52nd Street, the legendary 52nd Street, where Bitches Brew was recorded. And I just thought, uh, since the research department was actually doing something today, you want to slide that in here. Let's talk more about Miles Runs the Voodoo Down. A 14-minute jam that just takes him all over, and it's almost like he's writing a map, you know? Look, if you go over here and you bring that guitar in there, this will sound like this. Here's an idea for future you know, collaborations, guys. And a lot of this, while very popular out in the public mind, also was hugely influential on the inside of the music business. These kind of feels that these guys were taking with them to form Return to Forever and Weather Report and Mahavishnu Orchestra and beyond because all those guys helped to spawn the next generation of rock and jazz collaborations and, and a lot of the jazz players came out of that too and they closed the album marcus with two compositions ideas if you will because there weren't any notes written on paper when they went in sanctuary is a different feeling song marcus more traditional jazz not as much experimental but still inside it there's all kinds of different things going on They fit perfectly into the vibe of what Miles was trying to do. It's all about his vision when it comes down to it. And we've seen it with people who are geniuses in their field, their area, and it's rarely wrong. They usually click on all cylinders. There are the uh, the tragic stories we hear of people who couldn't connect their genius to the outside world, and some of them are sidebars of this very family tree-oriented story that we're telling here. But this thing here, phew, Finishes up with Wayne Shorter's Fayo, one of my favorite drummers. You know it, Billy Cobham, playing the left drums on Fayo. And he's got all kinds of musicians picking their parts all the way through. And they come through here at the end. And you've got a four-sided masterpiece that is still to this day, in my opinion, while it's achieved a certain amount of success from a commercial sales perspective, underappreciated genius is a term that I think describes Bitches Brew. Just my call. I think it's an accurate way to describe it. It's only sold a little over a million copies. It hasn't even sold that many copies. It sold 500,000 the first year, and then after that, it took a while to get to a platinum. I can't remember exactly if it's multi-platinum but I know it's gone platinum. And we should get the research department on sales for Bitches Brew. Yo, research department, research department, <laughs> we need sales on Bitches Brew. Is but it a fair question, though? Let me ask you this. Is it a fair question that the executives at Columbia might not have had the highest of expectations for a double album of such a landmark, groundbreaking nature by a guy like Miles Davis in 1969, 1970s vibe? If their expectations were low, Say they were looking to sell at least 250000 which would make it a gold record because you get credit for two when you have a double album. If that was their expectation and they sold a half a million and went platinum, well, that's a 100% increase. 
So I think it's all based on what expectations might have been on the inside on the front end of that, if there were any at Columbia Records in those days. I don't know. Yeah, but can you imagine the material cost for the tape and then the time for the editing at that time as well? And the fact that he had three days versus one three-hour to four-hour session to record an album. So I'm sure the costs there were pretty high. So I would be willing to bet money the Columbia executives were like, damn it, this better sell or we're in trouble. (laughs) This blows our budget. Something we were talking about earlier, and that is that most jazz records were made in one, two, three takes. The, the idea, the theme would be laid out, and whoever was the uh, the lead artist on the track would probably lead everybody through, or at least set them in the right direction. And those sessions would be usually, say you had a three-hour session, you might do a couple songs in that time frame. So you could do a whole album's worth of material in a few sessions, and that's your cost. In something like this, you're talking about multi-tracks and all kinds of hand done edits and things that have to be spliced and edited together to make things work the way that the artist envisions it on top of the time that it takes to record on top of that extra time to bring together the parts from the different songs and the different versions. It may not be Peter Gabriel's so level of tape storage, but there's a lot of tape being used stored and probably still being stored somewhere in the Columbia CBS Uh, of Miles Davis' Bitches Brew because it took a lot of tape to achieve what we've been discussing. Piles and piles of tape. I'm sure the cost... I'd have a hernia! I have a hernia lifting these boxes of tape. I'm a sugar nut. Ira, Ira, call the doctor. (laughs) Is the imbalanced history of rock and roll, and I'll tell you, I uh, have a whole new appreciation for this album. I always appreciated its place, the music itself, Mm -hmm. and its role in spawning so much and inspiring others, even as it was in a dawning of a new age, bringing other sounds together that hadn't crossed paths before. But to listen to it again with adult ears or more adult ears, it's just astounding stuff. It is an astounding record. I also listened to In a Silent Way this morning, and I've been listening to Kind of Blue and The Birth of Cool a little bit in the past week as well, just because I wanted to hear the differences that I was reading about between these sounds. And you can also hear his growth and his band's growth as musicians when he jumps from album to album between Kind of Blue, which everybody maps as one of those quintessential landmarks as far as jazz albums go. And then In a Silent Way is up there as far as one of those landmark albums. And it was recorded six months before Bitches Brew, and it is a totally different album. Like you said at the beginning, going from In a Silent Way into Bitches Brew the way he did makes sense because of his growth and the way he was willing to try things that had never been tried before and to take his music to the next level, which he tried to do every album, push those limits to something completely new that has never been done before. And he succeeded beyond anything imaginable. And you even uh, mentioned the fact that the album is ahead of its time. Today, even it's still ahead ahead of its time, if you really think about it. With the title of this album, Marcus, we didn't really address it, but there's a couple things that come into play. And um, I will trust Carlos Santana, who is a cosmic traveler, who has uh, traveled along with Miles Davis while he was still with us, I suppose. And he said that the album 
was meant to be a tribute to the cosmic ladies, as he called them, who surrounded Miles at the time in the late 60s. And they introduced him to some of the music of the times, the clothing, the attitudes, the counterculture, and maybe a little bit of a LSD trip or something. Maybe they had some of that there too. You know what I'm saying? Now, that's one view. And the other one is that the bitches, and this is Gary Tomlinson, who's a jazz writer. He said that he said that he assumed that the bitches referred to the musicians themselves and said bitch was a term akin to motherfucker, which can be used as an accolade, like you're my motherfucker or, you know, not necessarily in a not. Yeah, not necessarily in a negative derogatory manner. And it's hard to understand, maybe, I guess, for us here in the 21st century, how that is appropriate or could be true. But I guess it was. But I do know what you mean. Like when you call somebody your motherfucker, you're not necessarily saying that you think they're doing your mom. You're telling them that you feel good about them. You know, just like you would say, you're my bro, you know, or something like that. But it's an accolade in some circles. Let's just say that. How's that? Those are the two meanings or stories I found behind the names of what bitches brew may be. And the thing about Uh, it. But but credit where credit's due, because I found that because of Paul Tingen, who works at Jazz Times, the magazine. So I found that on one of his blogs. But the key to the album is the title. And it's provocative. It's evocative. It's risky. Sure is. It's bold. It's extraordinary. And then you combine it with the artwork, which we haven't mentioned either. And that was done by a German artist named Abdul Mati Klarwein. It's a naked black couple looking expectantly at an ocean with a huge, vibrant red flower beside them. Nothing was done like that in 69, 70 when this album came out. It was instantly memorized, memorable, and somewhat controversial, but not as much as you might think. It was the times. But yeah, man, it stood out. Like, everything about this album. There are two ways to look at Bitches Brew. It is music as an abstract, ambient, atmospheric vibe, or it's an open, free environment that you can enter and roam as you please. I say D, as in Davis, all of the above, motherfucker. (laughs) He loved saying that word. He He did. He loved saying the word (laughs) motherfucker. And... What can you say? He's a genius, and this world is lucky. We're lucky that we got to live during part of his life. I feel thankful because his music is wonderful. If you've got anything you want to add to the conversation about Bitches Brew, you can hit us up on our email address, imbalancehistory at gmail.com. We are on social media all over the place. We're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. You can find us there. And you can also find us now on a lot of apps where podcasts are distributed like CastBox and Player FM, Podbean and PodKite, Stitcher for us as well. Oh, and you can find us on your Android in a lot of places that there's almost too many to mention for the Android now, but a lot of apps are set up for one or the other or both. And yeah, we're, we just got recently got added to Amazon's music service and Pandora and Spotify has become one of the most popular podcast uh, places because it's so easy to navigate and people really like it there. You know, you got to look at that as usability, user friendly, whatever you want to call it. But So thanks for finding us there. 
there, and thanks for any positive stars you're giving us. We do appreciate that. And don't forget to stop by our website. It is imbalancehistory.com. You can find all the episodes there, all kinds of good blogs on there. There's a cool blog about the Brian Jones Project that's on there. And every now and then we put up something that's related to an episode or unrelated to an episode because we're fucking knuckleheads like that. That's why we do this crazy <laughs> podcast every week for you here on the Pantheon Podcast Network. Time to go, mon frere. So from the Dark Doc Media Studios, recording remotely as we have during the entire pandemic, but somehow we make this thing work. Until we meet again on these internet webs and all that good stuff, I'm Ray Coop. I'm Marcus in the Darkest. Thanks for listening to the Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.